On this episode of Athletic Training Chat, we have Dr. Kim Barber-Foss, who, if you listened to our first one with uh, Kim, now has doctor in front of her name. That is one of the many things that we talk about on this episode. A lot has happened in her life from getting her PhD to leaving the traditional setting and taking advantage of an opportunity that got presented to her. We talk a lot about that at Emory Spark and all the amazing things they have going on down there um, and everything that she's doing as a part of it. So really, really good um, and interesting information there and just great updates. If you've ever considered research or have been hesitant, this is a great episode. Uh, Dr. Robert Foss gives a lot of good insight into just getting started and connecting with people. As always, we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. We have our Throw a Lifeline program. Now has a new home. Uh, if you go to clinicallypress.org, uh, we have kind of redone everything there to formalize everything with a donate button to go specifically to the nonprofit. Uh, but you can designate to go right to Throw a Lifeline. With that, we are going to continue to get these kits to athletic trainers that just need them because their budget does not allow for them. Uh, for whatever reason so we hope to do that just by listening to this you're helping generate uh, revenue by listening to the ad we appreciate you taking the time to do that Uh, you can share it out help us get more listeners that will help drive that as well in addition to any other donations but without further ado please enjoy this episode Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. We are on with now Dr. Kim uh, Barber-Foss. And really, this is a catch-up because uh, the last time we talked, it was about clinical research. And at the time, uh, she was working uh, at the high school setting, plus also helping out with a lot of research, um, and now has taken on an entirely new role. um, And just from seeing some of the stuff on social media and also following her employer, uh, with some extremely cool uh, facilities and things to be done. So uh, really, we just were wanted to catch up and hear about all the new uh, things that she's doing and how that still applies to clinical research, which is obviously a passion of yours, um, and go from there. So with that, if you would like to start going through the list of changes kind of within the last year or two, uh, then we'll kind of jump into it. All right. Well, thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, at the age of 52, I finished up my PhD, so I'm glad to have that knocked out of there. Um, Rocky Mountain University major in athletic training, so I did my dissertation on epidemiology of flag football injuries. So there's, you know, 39% increase the last three years of flag football participation, and not as much improvement in healthcare coverage with athletic trainers, too. So I wanted to look at you know, changes in what their injuries are occurring. So many more kids are playing it and we don't really know what the injuries are. And then the caveat was, you know, I went to these national tournaments to collect the data and guess how many athletic trainers were there? You know, none for the youth level. So that kind of really, I've always been hugely passionate about athletic trainers and AT advocacy, but now I'm really wanting to uh, move towards advocating, especially at the youth level, because 
it's just not acceptable to not have athletic trainers there. So in addition to that, you know, moved to Atlanta, um, went from left Cincinnati Children's Hospital that I was at for 16 years. Most of our team from there came down here with the opportunity with Emory University to open a brand new facility. It's called the Sports Performance and Research Center. We call it SPARC. So we're on the Atlanta Falcons practice facility, so we're connected with them. Great facility to really increase the amount of biomechanics we can do. We have our own dedicated research MRI right here in our facility. So we're doing a lot more neuroimaging, uh, muscle volume imaging, DTI, looking at a lot of motor control. So we have that ability to directly tie brain to body, which is phenomenal. On the downside, this is the first time in 30 years I also haven't been a high school athletic trainer. So having a hard time adjusting to that. I can but, imagine. Uh, the new role that I'm embracing, but I do miss it. Thankfully, gotta love social media so I can stay in touch with a lot of my former athletes. There you go, absolutely. And then also is your work with Noxy, that's relatively new as well, or at least your title is. Yes, so my new role, for the last five years, I was on, I've was i been on the board of directors for Knox, okay. which is the National Operating Committee for the Standards of Athletic Equipment. And I actually represented the NATA as their liaison onto the board. And then a year ago, um, the current research director retired. So I was actually voted by the board to take over that role. So I assumed the role of the research director for the organization uh, January 1st of this, this year. Awesome. So now I oversee all of their research grant programs, um, working with the board. We're implementing a lot of like educational materials now, trying to do more engagement with stakeholders, you know, getting more um, equipment information out there to like parents, coaches, you know, what to look for with proper fitting equipment, mm-hmm. how to identify certified equipment. So we're trying to really get Noxie at the forefront. You know, we've always been the standards organization, but really increasing engagement with parents, coaches, athletes, why it's important, what to look for, how to properly fit things, and then the continued development of standards to help improve the safety for all athletes playing sports. Awesome. So with all of this change, you know, what, I guess, drew you to this role now uh, with Emory Spark, um, I didn't realize, and you just kind of mentioned, you know, a, a group of you went down there, and if obviously that could probably play a factor, but you know, from going from like you said, that many years being on the sideline, how did that all come to be? And that a big decision, obviously, huge decision. And um, I love my team up at Cincinnati Children's, but I I really love the high school I worked at there. But the opportunity that we had, you know, with Dr. Greg Meyer and Dr. Jed Deepfest, Dr. Chris Reem, um, and a couple of other clinicians like Andrew Schill, we all came down here as a group. Emory, like, embraced all of us. And so brought us all down, gave us, you know, this beautiful facility to work in. And, you know, I've worked with Dr. Meyer for, well, 17 years now. So um, he brought me to Cincinnati Children's previously. So just was a natural fit that I wanted to go with him, you know, onto this next adventure. And he, he keeps calling it Kim 2.0, but so we'll, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, it was really 
leaving the clinical side was the hardest decision for me to leave sure. Lachlan High School. The research side was like a no-brainer for the opportunities. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, this was like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity now coming to Emory. So what is what is your role? Like, you know, if people have followed you, you talk a lot about research, you know, clinical research, obviously now with your director of research um, with Noxy, um and everything. What is your role as, I believe it was an associate research scientist was the yeah. title I had looked up. Yep. Um, yep. At Emory Spark, you, you know, you reference some of the cool things that are going on. Are you leading a bunch of different studies or how, how does that all come together? Well, I think they kind of had to figure out a name to give give me because I didn't have my PhD yet. So that's what they came up with, research scientists. But, you know, gotcha. I that a lot of what I do is I do a lot of the logistics for a lot of our studies. Okay. So we have so many that are going on. I look at, you know, I do all the regulatory information with the IRB, all the protocol development for all the studies, all the subject consents. But it's a lot of the, the logistics of all the research subjects in the lab. I also do data collection for most of our studies, coordination if we have an imaging study and lab study together, coordinating with the MRI and then with the lab staff. So I kind of, uh, I view myself as like the, put all the pieces into place and the, the puzzle master and kind of the, what do they call the person that runs the strings? Sure, sure. So I kind of feel like that's kind of my role now is just making sure everything happens. I also help with all the grants and still do a lot of uh, manuscript writing for papers and publications and more. I've been doing more presentations and speaking engagements and conferences. And I see that that's probably going to be increasing more as well. But now that I'm a PhD, I also have the potential additional hat to wear with more independent research as well. And submitting my own grants for some of my own studies. And the first one I actually want to do is Georgia has, uh, they sanction flag football as a girls high school sport. Oh, nice. I'd actually like to do a statewide epidemiology study. Um, that kind of talked into your, your, your specific research focuses that you're wanting to do. And I'd just be curious from your dissertation, you know, there's a lot of argument for flag football to being safer. And then I've heard, you know, other people, well, you know, if they do fall, da, da, there's no protective, you know, equipment. Like what, have, what have you found, you know, in your dissertation or so far just in kind of your work? I'm curious. Well, yeah, that was kind of the whole, the impetus. And that was my prime driving question for the dissertation because the media promotes it as being a safer alternative, right. not based on any objective data or any objective information. And what I actually found was that injury rate characteristics were pretty similar to what's been reported in tackle football. Okay. In terms of like the overall rate. Now, of course, severity was less. Sure. Uh, but 75% of all injuries that I found were related to direct impact and contact. So here we have these kids that most they're getting hurt from contact. Should they have some type of protective equipment on them yep. even though it's really like minor injuries it's not as significant but maybe even it's just like padded like padded shorts sure padded jerseys to help when they're falling and then another thing that was really interesting going for the flag was the single most common mechanism of injury and watching all of these kids like especially at the youth level they're diving, they're propelling themselves, going for these flags. Yeah. Maybe we should move the flags up higher 
to onto the back so that they're more upright and they're not propelling themselves. And then also teaching better technique, you know, youth tackle football has changed because of like heads up programs and learning how to tackle and technique correctly. We have all these kids now they're playing flag football. We haven't had that educational models that have developed along with it. We haven't had all the trainings that we see with tackle. So there's huge room to educate coaches and educate players on proper technique. Stop using yourself as, you know, propelling and jumping and leaving your feet going after a flag. So I think things like that would significantly decrease injury as well. And then the the most interesting thing that, that I found, which kind of relates to Noxie too, is you know just the way the flags are put together. All of the injuries that I had related to the hip were from kids falling on those little hard plastic clips. Oh yeah, attaches to the belt that sit right at the pelvis. So maybe they use different type of material rather than hard plastic and that would reduce injuries as well yeah i was just trying to think back to all the time playing flag football and like well yes it's not contact if you're a savvy offensive player you could use your body as some contact and probably get your avoid getting your flag taken because if you're into somebody and potentially running them over they're probably not going to grab your flag in that process and so yeah it's a that's interesting and i had always wondered that too just as you said, but with no objective data. Hmm. Yep. And even if it's like incidental, and there's always going to be incidental contact. Right. There has to be, you know, something we can do to just minimize the contusions and things like that that occur. They're not significant injuries, but they're still relevant. Absolutely. No, I agree. Um, the next question I was just kind of rereading and the, really everything we've talked about makes sense. You know, you talked about the spark facility being awesome. And if people listening, haven't seen it on like Twitter or go to the website, like it looks amazing. Um, And again, being tied into the Atlanta Falcons, you know, and you mentioned the uh, research MRI, which I'm sure there's ATs across the country that are going, Holy crap. If we could have one of those, um, how great that would be. You know, for you, how do you balance you know, all the great work doing there? But then also you're talking about this research of epidemiology, which doesn't necessarily require a ton of fancy equipment or any at all in order to potentially make impactful recommendations and findings. How do you, you know, I guess, balance that or see that as how are they important and interrelate? Um and I guess, you know, for some people it might see that high level, you know, research MRI, you know, and the study coming out of that being more important. And I say that in quotes, mm-hmm. you know, than an epidemiology study. So from your point of view, you know, balancing all of that, especially in your role of conducting all of that research. Well, I think what's really important is to kind of keep in mind like translation, translational research. And that's kind of where I view myself as, I take things, I do all this lab-based research, but I also want to know how does that impact day-to-day athletic trainers' life? Like uh, what can they do and what can they see in their clinic, in their settings, take what we're doing in the lab, but impacting day-to-day. And that's kind of where epidemiology falls in as well too, identifying risks and trends and rates. And it may be simple that you can make a change and have a significant impact. Um, 
you know, and I'm a, I'm a huge data geek. So, and I wrote one of the things I like about epidemiology, it's really just, you know, taking down numbers, observing things, taking notes. Athletic trainers do that every day on the right. field of the training rooms. And I don't think they often make that connection that that's data and they may be doing research, but just collecting simple data of, you know, injuries that you're seeing, exposures that you have, like if you're tracking, you know, treatments that you're doing at the end of a season, you have a huge wealth of data that could impact your clinical practice, could imp impact um, supplies, staffing, anything with your administration. So one of the things that I'm really passionate about too is getting athletic trainers out of the thinking of data as a four-letter word. And uh, you know we have the NATA COPA Analytics and Outcomes Committee that I'm on, and that's one of the things that we're really trying to focus on is taking the stigma away from data and just having athletic trainers trying to think about it in a different way. Sure. Any question you may have, you can answer. You know pen and paper, writing things down, putting things into an EMR, but it's just thinking about it a little bit differently. So I really view myself as like a clinician scholar, a translational researcher, where I take these big, you know, multi-million dollar research studies in a fancy lab and can make the change out at practice on the next week and how to take that step. I think that is something I don't I was having a conversation with somebody else about that is, you know, we assume that we know things like just from intu intuition, basically. But then there is no there's nothing wrong with going and trying to actually show that in the data or like right. looking at it to confirm it, because you could get surprised, you know, and it may not be uh, we had a simple example we're working with a local group of firefighters and we did a movement screen that looked at some left right imbalances but then we also did an isometric mid-thigh pull and we tried to look at you know was, was there a dominant leg versus the other and there was literally no correlation between the two if they were stronger on one leg that didn't mean that they were better mover on that leg which intuitively you would have thought maybe there would have been something there but apparently not at least in the, the group we looked at which would change it completely how I might approach working with them mm -hmm. and trying to address some of those things. So, yeah, I, I like that translational research concept. I think that's something that is, like you said, data is like a big scary word because everybody thinks you have to go and publish a paper about it, me included, right. terrified of writing. <laughs> Your job sounded awesome in terms of the logistics and everything. Like, I feel like I can handle that. And then it gets to the writing part and it just terrifies me. Yeah. But I mean, writing is a big part of our world. I mean, when they say publish or perish, it, it really means publish or perish. That is very fair. <laughs> oh. a, little, a little teaser talking about translational data and the ethic yeah. trainer. I mean, our analytics and outcomes committee is going to be giving a panel discussion forum kind of talk in Indianapolis. So hopefully people will come attend that. And it's just going to be about getting rid of that stigma of data and just improving your everyday situation. I will make a mental note as I am hoping to be there this year. So right. it's a drivable one for me. So hopefully that'll, that'll help get there. Kind of it related to everything we're talking about, but just what we were going off of, you know, You've worked with data, you've worked with some, we had some random cross 
connection on colleagues in the past. Um, some really smart people, but obviously you've worked within it. Like, how did you get over maybe the hump of like, I don't want to necessarily write, or, you know, if there's some misconceptions that you would say for somebody that's like wanting to dip their toe into the research world or potentially use some of their data and see if it's even publishable ideas or recommendations. Cause obviously you were involved with a lot of it prior to your PhD and I'm just, is it safe to say you don't necessarily have to have that PhD in order to do it type of a scenario? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you don't need the PhD to write. I think the biggest advice is just doing it. I mean, you become a better writer by reading. So like reading the JAT articles that are published, just by reading them keeps you abreast of topics, but it also helps you improve your writing. But everybody always has, they have a unique case. They have a unique um, athlete that they've dealt with. Jot down notes on that and then just kind of expand upon it before you know it. You may have a publishable case study. You know, if you're reading some articles that are interesting, you may be able to write like a clinical commentary that journals will publish where you're just kind of taking things that you're reading, but you're adding in your thoughts based upon your clinical experience. Um, you know, writing is, is challenging and it, it's a skill that develops, but it develops the more you do it. So it's just kind of sure. taking that first step. And, you know, I mean, I think I have like 89 or 90 papers at this point. It's still a struggle for me, like getting started and just sitting down and doing it. But it's just, you have to take that first step just to put the first couple of words on paper and then build from there. Absolutely. We touched on your role a little bit with Noxie, but if you could go and you know just explain a little bit more for everybody what that is, uh, I think we touched on it a little bit before we hit record. Um, and then again, kind of like your role, you've been a part of the board for you said five years, and now um, with this director of research, and you know what that looks like because your job sounds busy as it is, uh, and then even like how you kind of maybe can complement the two of them together. Okay. Well, Noxie, they are the standards organization. So they develop performance standards for athletic equipment, you know, such as if you take like a football helmet, they're the ones that have developed like the pass fail criteria for the different, for the drop testings. And um, they do performance testing on like shin guards. The newest one that's come out is like lacrosse for the commotio cordis. So they did all the performance testing on that looking at the protection over the cardiac silhouette to making sure that equipment meets the standard that if there was ever an impact on that cardiac silhouette, that it's not going to cause commotion cortis and cause the heart to stop. So it's been developing standards for all, all kinds of different sports. Like even a lacrosse ball has a performance standard. It has to have, you know, a certain hardness, you know, not just to mention the size, but it can't deform too much. Because if you think about um, like the lacrosse mask, if you have a lacrosse ball that doesn't have a deformation standard, it can deform on impact. And then before you know it, it can fit between the bars on a, on a mask. So we have standards for all of those different types of equipment. And it's kind of, you know, governing bodies will use and recommend that, you know, it has to be a Noxie certified piece of equipment yep. in order for an athlete to play. And we see that the most commonly in like football helmets. Absolutely. That in order for an athlete to take the field, it has to be in a Noxie certified uh, 
equipment. So that's kind of what we do. And what's really great about Noxy is it's based upon members from all kinds of different organizations. So like I represented the NHTA on their board of directors, but there's members from um, football equipment manufacturers, athletic equipment uh, recertifiers, um, American College of Sports Medicine, American uh, College of Collegiate Health, um, AOSSM has membership. So it's a big variety of people that all have concerns about making sports safer for athletes. So it's a very diverse and like passionate board of people that really want to affect change and keep kids safe and not have them get injured. So it's been a really great experience representing the NATA with them and um, kind of a way that I've been able to give back to the NATA as well, being able to be the liaison or work back and forth between the two organizations, take things that we've been discussing with Noxie and present them back to the NATA board um, for their education and just kind of having athletic trainers have a voice and have a seat at the table with uh, uh, the Noxie organization. Transitioning over to the research director now, um, Noxie, while we develop all these athletic standards, we also have a very robust uh, research arm of the organization where we have funded millions of dollars in various research studies, you know, in concussion related studies, biomechanics studies, so my role now is going to be overseeing that research grant program. Um, so I'll be doing that. We have a small grant program, which is like a $50,000 grant. And then we have a large grant program, which can be up to um, $250,000. Okay. So managing those grant programs. And then also a role that I'm going to be taking over more of now, too, is a new role that we're kind of rolling out is, again, that educational component. Um doing more with LinkedIn, with social media. I'm gonna be doing some blog posts, just kind of quick little videos of called like the Safe Sport Report from the Noxie Research Director. Uh, they've updated my LinkedIn now to kind of reflect different um, blogs that we're gonna do for Noxie. So it's trying to take more of, you know, people are kind of aware of the equipment standards, but adding the fact that Noxie also does research and why research is important and how research may improve the standards and you know ultimately make sports safer for kids. And I'm a perpetual insomniac, so that's how I can kind of manage that, that, that honestly was you know my gonna be my follow-up question from that first one is just you know that that sounds like its own complete full-time gig all by itself, let alone combining it with you know the work that you're doing at spark so <laughs> is it truly just because you don't sleep very much or for the most part yeah i'm just i have pretty pretty good time management skills and multitasking ability and so yeah fair enough my kids are older now too so they just have more free time yeah i they that is something uh i will not have for quite some time uh given the current age of my uh, two little ones. So yeah, that, it, that makes its own interesting balance as you're trying to do things and make it happen and not doing that, uh, yeah, not missing out spent, on those other time. My kids spent many hours on the sidelines with me up until my daughter went to college. She was like my go-to water person at Lachlan. So she was there. You go. James helping me out there. But, yeah, they're awesome. 
anything that we haven't covered around Emory Spark or Noxie or just research in general that you wanted to touch on? Gosh, I don't know. I just, my whole goal and passion is just, you know, aside from AT advocacy is just having people think of a research question and address it. There's no such thing as not an important question. You know, athletic trainers, we are so unique that we really can, we can answer anything we set our minds to. And, you know, as a data geek, if we all start collecting our injuries, our exposures, you know, our data, and if you think if we could ever pool all of that together into like big mm -hmm. data, we would dominate the world. I mean, we, it would be just global domination from an athletic training perspective. So for someone who's out there that's really good with that type of thing, there you go. There's your idea. Absolutely. Finding a um, way to get all the EMRs to talk to each other. Oh, yeah. Golden. <laughs> yes. Um, well, yeah, being really good at data mining. Uh, before we jump into the AT chat questions, um, you just, yeah, you you've referenced a couple of times, you know, your advocacy for the profession and, you know, I think if it was on record or not about, you know, going to these uh, flag football competitions and not having an athletic trainer there. Uh, you've obviously been in the profession um, with a lot of experience, seen a lot of things, you know, especially at the secondary level. What have you found to be some of the most effective things that you've come across for advocacy. Uh, that's a, it's a big topic, obviously, and a big word. And you know, there's different way, different ways and different situations to go about it. But I'd be curious as to what your thoughts are and what you've seen that's worked, and maybe what doesn't work quite as well in terms of maybe trying to get more athletic trainers into these areas. Yeah, it's uh, it really goes from just your grassroots personal things all the way up to getting the ears of every stakeholder out there. Um, good question. I mean, I've, I've been doing this for 30 years. So, you know, back at the old school practices of volunteering for things that are out there just to make sure they have an athletic trainer, which unfortunately then can also negate our value because sure. we deserve to be paid for our services. We are healthcare providers. Right. But just trying to network with organizations and get so that they can see the value of an athletic trainer and you know kind of showing them how to work with us and what our skill sets are, I think is really important. Talking to everybody, you know, getting engaged, making connections, like talking to the coaches, talking to the ADs, talking to the administrators, talking to the superintendents, talking to the parents. Parents can be your biggest advocate out there as well because no parent wants their kid to be unsafe. So spending time talking to parents about what we do and why we're important and have them also then turn around and be a voice for athletic trainers. You know, if they're going to be taking their kids to a big tournament, they should be also be inquiring, is there an athletic trainer there for my kid? And why isn't there? You mm -hmm. look at like the cost of all these travel teams and youth sports now and what they're paying, like they're paying a lot of money and to go and not have any appropriate medical care is really unacceptable. And if we start 
getting parents to be advocates as well, they can help do some work for us until it becomes part of doing business as an athletic organization or a team. It just has to become more and more like vocal from more people in the masses and vocal kind of in a positive way. Like I am an athletic trainer because I can help them do this. These are all the positive things rather than, you know, there's so much negative media attention that's out there. And I understand capitalizing on negativity, but also be more, I'm just more of like the positive person. These are sure positive services I can provide. Yeah. I don't know that going after, you know, time, there's times and places to call things out, but I don't know that it's ever going to be the best way to try and convince people of things and get them to react the way you want to. Cause oftentimes people are going to dig in their heels, even if they might realize that they were in the wrong, but I just, it, it can be a hard way. You know, I don't know that a lot of people like getting called out. And so sometimes, yes, it's required, but it might not get us to our ultimate goal of getting that person to understand the utility. And if it's a bad interaction, I don't know that they're going to want to reach out to an athletic trainer to, right. to help them out, which, you know, I understand the visceral need, you know, response to a lot of these terrible things that have happened, but somehow figuring out how to bring that person in to understand why this could be better um, is something, something worth considering. Right. And so. just from my experience, like with one of the organizations for my dissertation, you know, having me there, you know, and they had an athletic trainer up at the adult field. But there was nobody down at the 12 youth fields. Sure. So while there was technically someone on site, it was a ways away. Sure. But now they're like their perceptions have changed because I shared with them, you know, this is what I saw today. And, you know, these are the interactions that we had. Parents also then talked with them saying, you know, we saw Kim over here and, you know, it was just a bruise, but they're more likely now to have somebody at their next tournament because they saw the perceived the benefit from having it. Yeah. So just kind of, I don't know, doing things in a positive way, I think it's always more effective. I I agree with you. Um, it just seems to get people to respond. Yes. Maybe a little bit better. Yeah. Anyway, uh, moving on to the AT chat questions. I'm kind of curious. Uh, I don't remember what your response was when I asked you, uh, the where do you see athletic training going in the next five to 10 years? Even in the short time ago that we talked, I imagine that may have shifted a little bit. A, you know, your role shifted, but B, we're seeing demand seemingly higher, but a supply that is not able to meet that currently. So I'm curious if that your outlook on where the profession is going has changed at all. Yeah, that's hard because I have loved being an athletic trainer for 30 years. And with changes the last couple of years that I've kind of seen globally, it hurts my heart, some of the changes in the profession. And I am very uncertain on where I see the profession five years from now. Because I don't, there aren't as many people going into the, into the profession 
And, you know, a big part of that is the restructuring of the program. Yep. But then people that are coming out of the programs, I'm not sure if they're really seeing the opportunities that are available or if their expectations of the opportunities after graduation don't totally align. That makes me concerned. Um, I think athletic trainers can work in any setting because we have such a great skill set. But to me, it's it's really disheartening now seeing so many of our, our core settings struggling to find an athletic trainer. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I still firmly believe that, you know, every every high school, every middle school should have access to an athletic trainer. And rather than moving towards that, I feel like we've taken so many steps back from that being a goal. So it just, it concerns me deeply where the profession may be going. I think so many doors have opened, but now it feels like so many buildings are empty. Sure. You know, I don't know if the doors open and people are coming in or if the doors are open and people are just leaving. Right, right. Yes, it, it will be very interesting how it all ends up playing out. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you go back and give yourself even just a couple of years ago when you were, if you could look back and before you made the career change, you know, or not the career change, but the job change, um, if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice. Hmm, that's a good question. I think I would tell myself to never not explore an opportunity. Oh, I like that. Always kind of be open because you never know what's going to present itself. Sure. You know, I loved the high school I worked at in Iowa. Never thought I would leave until I had the opportunity at Cincinnati Children's. Sure. Loved my time there, Lachlan High School. Never thought I'd leave until this opportunity presented itself. So I think it's really just keeping that open open mind, you know, a positive mindset of where your path may go. You know, like Robert Frost is like my favorite poet you know the talk about the road less traveled sure you know it's it may be scary as heck but sometimes taking a road that's kind of unknown may lead to amazing things and that's kind of been my philosophy throughout my career just taking different options and so far it's resulted in amazing things i'm glad to hear that What has been the, one of the most influential resources that you've come across recently in your career? Crazily, probably social media. Okay. Think, you know, if you think about how things really shifted with COVID. Yes. It's almost like everybody became more isolated, yet more connected. You know, I met more people on social media and on Zoom than I ever would have imagined. Like totally diverse people. Absolutely. At the last NATA, it was like amazing meeting people in person that I've only ever talked to on Zoom. I'm so bummed I did not get to go to that one. 
Yeah, it was but like, I'm looking forward to it. It was amazing. Like, you know, I feel like you're knowing people because you connect with them. It's, but it's the first time ever meeting. And I think it just fosters so much more networking abilities than what yes. we've ever had in the past. So, yeah, I try to embrace the positivity of social media because there's so much negativity out there and like so many tantrums fights, but it ha can have such huge impact. You know, just the networking alone, like looking at people like job opportunities and you know, so-and-so because of social networks that you've built, you know, having increased uh, options, possibilities, you know, we also use subject recruitment is great for us too, through, through networking that, we yep. but I think that's probably been the thing. I'm actually very curious to hear your question on this one. I think this is a new one since we last talked, maybe not. As an AT in your role, how do you take care of yourself? I'm very curious because you were, we were just talking about how you're busy pretty much all the time. So how do you see that? And maybe it is just being busy, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Uh, yeah, like I'm petrol insomniac. I, <laughs> I probably, I honestly don't do the best at taking care of myself. I let myself get stressed to the point where I start to get burnout. Then it's like, you know, you got to reevaluate that. No, this is my passion. Um, well, I had something I was going to say, but I didn't say. But I don't know. I I try engaging with people is probably how I help take care of myself, um, so that I don't feel isolated. I mean, sure. I miss being on the sidelines working with kids. But I love talking with people that are doing that job now and, and hearing their their inputs on the day. Football season was incredibly hard for me being not being in a football game Friday night. Sure. Scrolling through Twitter and seeing like the posts and everything was that kept me motivated and helped me feel better. One thing that I've really come to adopt is I don't necessarily I've never had work life balance. Because to me, balance is like a 50-50. Sure. I almost felt like I was a failure when it came to that. But I went to a talk in the, the last NATA. And I can't remember who it was, but they said it life should be a work-life ratio. And that like just that. really yep. resonated with me because my 70-30 work-life ratio may work for me. And it may not work for someone else. Right. Maybe a 60-40, a 40-60. You know, but that doesn't there. mean it's wrong. Right. Because it's based on you. Yep. I so hate that argue I hate that argument on social media. Like yeah. Yeah. I can't hack it or you know, the workaholic. Like, yeah, there's different sides of it, absolutely. But when I was 27 and single, my work life ratio was very different than 36 married with two kids. I, yeah. it's, it is, it by necessity changed yeah. in my opinion, but yeah. It, and, and it's fluid. It's going to change and, and it should be fluid. It should change based upon changes in work, changes in life. It, I don't think anything really can ever be 50, 50. So now when I think about it as a ratio, I don't feel like I'm a failure. So I just kind of that change in mindset. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I like that one. 
this may you you could use that what you just said to answer this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, if you could change or eliminate one thing, modality, practice, um, mindset in the field of athletic training, what would it be? I would eliminate the mindset that there are tiers of athletic trainers. You know, people seem to think that working in one setting makes you a better mm -hmm. athletic trainer working in somewhere else. And I don't think that's accurate. I think an athletic trainer is going to excel in their setting and they may naturally gravitate to a setting that best suits them but i don't think someone working in professional sports d1 college is any better of an athletic trainer than i am working in a high school i totally think agree. i think that whole stigma of setting needs to go away yeah it's hard when there's not like a because you get a, it's a philosophical question what makes a good slash best athletic trainer right I don't know that there is an answer for that because it uh, so many variables go into it, as you said, you know, just if I did really well in the D3 setting, I don't know that I do so well in the high school setting personally. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, I, I like that one a lot. Last question, already answered once before, but again, a little bit of change in everything with career, you know, career and job. What does being an athletic trainer mean to you? It's, basically who I think I am. It's kind of like the core of my identity, which is probably why I've struggled not being on a sideline because I feel like I've lost part of my identity. Sure. So it's, it's probably, you know, I love my kids, love my family, but it's probably being an athletic trainer is what I equate to being probably the most important thing in my life aside from my kids and family. It's just, it's part of who I am. I it's like it. Job. It's never been a job. Oh, what was it? Somebody is like, it's not always like do what you love, but love what you do type of a thing. And right. Makes... And love what you do, even on the days when you hate it. Right. Knowing that it's probably not going to be like that forever. Yep. That was always one I kind of think about is like, you're going to have days you don't want to go to work, but as long as you're not just absolutely dreading it over and over, it's probably just one of those days. Right. And if it ever comes into that dread, maybe it's time to take a different look at what, what you're doing or where you're at. Cause it can be as simple as a setting there. So yeah, absolutely. Well, anything else that you want to touch on before we kind of wrap up and let people know where they could connect with you if they'd like to. Oh, yeah. Can't think of anything else. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on, chatting again. If people did want to follow you, connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, email is kim.barberfoss at emory.edu. Or I'm also on Twitter, and that's at kbarberfoss. And I'm now on Instagram. <laughs> Ooh. That's at kbarberfoss18 to reach out and talk to anybody awesome yes uh and anybody listening kim's awesome please reach out to her if you had questions on stuff uh, she gets back to you very very quickly with all even with all the things she has going on but 
thank you again for being on and catching up and kind of giving an update on what you're doing and everything that's been going on. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Athletic Training Chat with Dr. Kim Barber-Foss, who is absolutely crushing research, both with Emory Spark and then the epidemiology that she wants to look at. Uh, so many interesting things to come. I was your host, Joe Lutke, who is still research hesitant, even though we're trying to work our way into it, uh, as you probably caught from this episode of me trying to hype myself up um, and pull some more uh, details from Dr. Barber-Foss here. As always, Powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. So many great things coming out there. Uh, Check out next week's episode around uh, pneumatic compression. I learned a ton. Uh, Their Mueller Revive system is scientifically backed. Really good stuff. Everything was thought out to the detail. Uh, Definitely worth checking out there. And as always, if you have ideas um, and different things, connect with them. Connect with your local rep. They will find a way to you and be more than willing to take any ideas or thoughts that you have to help them uh, continue to better serve the athletic training profession. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next episode.